Hi, I'm Mark Carrigan. And I'm Jana Bajcevic. This is possibly a new series of the Isolation Pod, possibly an additional episode for the last series, possibly something else entirely. This is the second time we've tried to record this introduction because I felt so out of practice at doing this kind of performing that my mind just went blank. And given we're going to talk today about digital confidence and the digital divide, this seemed like quite an interesting thing to bring into the discussion, to be reflexive about the kind of production that we're engaged in. It is interesting to note that practice definitely, if not makes perfect, then certainly makes better. When you ask me to do a, well, a new episode or perhaps the new series of the isolation pod, I was reflecting on how learning to uh, record timed episodes, so learning to uh, make sure that our episodes do not take longer than half an hour, which I think was the norm in our isolation pod, um, made it easier for me to adjust to recording um, lectures of specific duration when I started recording my lectures for students at Durham this year. Uh, and how that, for some reason, did not seem to be a problem. What about you? Well, I mean, clearly practice does uh, have a huge impact. But when we talked about this, you used the word normalization, which I think is the you know, most uh, relevant description. And I find myself in an opposition because as someone who's done a lot of this over a long period of time, albeit mainly low quality audio delivered in awkward performances like the one that defined the first attempt we made at this. I, you know, possibly could be seen to have had an advantage on people in terms of a familiarity with the kind of affectivity of performing if you're an introvert and you don't like performing, you know, performance through digital media, um, using software, albeit in basic ways. But as someone who has not taught very much this year and whose teaching was predominantly synchronous, uh, I feel that I would have actually quite, in a way, enjoyed the practice and experience of, of making short form video content. Yeah, it's curious. I spoke to quite a few people and um, experiences in terms of this really vary. So I've, I've heard people say that they actually wish they could do face-to-face -face lectures because they find it so much easier to relate to people um, in when they're well when they're in the same room. Uh, and I've also heard people say that they would prefer to teach synchronously. And uh, whereas my university, sort of institution where I work, has now instituted a, a bit of a hybrid policy, so you can kind of choose whether you want to do synchronous lectures from time to time. Uh, asynchronous, so recording in advance is still the norm. And I think it is a more, I think it is a better appro approach because we have so many students, especially with sort of lockdown and, and the pandemic, uh, who are not in the same time zone as we are. So in that sense, not doing things synchronously or pre-recording lectures, I think makes it easier for them to participate. On the other hand, I think we all still do kind of quite a bit of, of things that are synchronous anyway, like seminars or discussions. Uh, so in that sense, it's not like it's a silver bullet to solve all inequalities in academic knowledge production. Uh, it's more like it's a sort of a, a stopgap uh, 
to prevent uh, the digital divide in the pandemic from getting really, really uh, insidiously out of hand? Well, I think there are different skills involved in each at risk of stating the obvious. And it's quite interesting to think about who would be liable to feel confident by virtue of their existing professional experience at each of them in turn. Uh, I mean, I, I find group facilitation uh, through a platform like Zoom or Teams very draining, much more so than I do in a kind of uh, group where I'm present in person. I mean, I, I believe you have at, at times had this experience as well in terms of the capacity of people to recede from view. And without a sense of kind of lived engagement, it's hard to, you know, kind of get into a, get into a groove with the experience. I'd often find it difficult with a group, particularly if I didn't know them well, to, you know, kind of get started and to get things going. But I'd often find that then a rhythm would uh, emerge, which would carry the interaction along. And, you know, that kind of collective affectivity seems much more fragile um, to me when teaching a group of people through a platform. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely the case. And I think it would be interesting for us to ponder what, what makes that difference because, or what contributes to that difference. I think some things are probably obvious group size, or you'd think they were obvious, like for instance, group size. But in my opinion, or in my experience, um, it's actually turned out that one of my best online groups is uh, a group of 40 people, so four zero, uh, which is an almost unimaginably large group to handle, especially in relation to the kind of activities that you are, um, you're referring to. Uh, but um, I mean, it's, it's a postgraduate taught program, so maybe it's because it's, it's sort of master's level, uh, but it just seems very nice. And I, I think possibly one of the things that, that contributed to that was the very first session where I asked everyone, uh, so literally everyone, to introduce themselves and um, at least say a few words about themselves and, and what makes them interested in the topic that um, the course, the module is about, which is in this case, qualitative research methods. And that took up almost the entirety of the 45 minutes that we have um, allocated to, to seminars. But it was a great way of, in a manner of speaking, presencing people. So making sure that they have at least said a few things in that first session that um, unless for very exceptional reasons, I would have seen them at least on the screen. And I think it made them feel more present or as well as co-present, so present with each other. And I think that probably made a bit of a difference uh, in that first session and then contributed to the group dynamic in the ensuing sessions, at least so far. Well, I think we should be wary of being overly philosophical about something that is fundamentally a matter of practice. But it does raise the obvious question of to what extent can we talk of presence in the same way? And obviously this is kind of very, this is terrain that's been done to death in a number of ways. 
but I, I think it's it's very interesting nonetheless to think about it and particularly the quality of the quality of attention involved because if you think about you know uh account of intersubjectivity and how intersubjectivity operates um, when it comes to physical co-presence where you're aware of them they're aware of you you're aware of their awareness they're aware of your awareness of their awareness and you know it's a kind of simple argument but one that i've always found plausible that intersubjective space opens up through that overlapping of awareness and you know does the virtuality and you know i mean any digital sociologist listening to this will be cringing that I just use the term virtuality because it's very old fashioned. But, you know, there is a degree of virtuality to video conferencing platforms, um, which have been designed in ways that kind of overcome some of the limitations of that and allow us to do things and engage and be present with others in ways which we can't face to face. You know, I often find myself very focused on things on headphones when I'm doing housework. And these are talks I would have not have been to in person because I wasn't interested enough to go and you know give over an afternoon or a day to travel to get somewhere, but love to drop into. And so, you know, there's a whole range of things open, opened up here, but there is something fundamentally different, I think, about how attention works when it's mediated through a platform, as opposed to how attention works in co-present physical spaces, which just as a caveat is not to say that the spaces are physical spaces are natural or neutral in that sense. The infrastructure of the space channels and shapes attention in ways comparable to the platform. But it's just one is much more familiar to us than the other. Yeah, I was just going to actually jump into that. And, and one thing that's quite interesting for me in terms of co-presence in a physical space, so what used to be the default assumption of teaching or, well, any sort of actually academic interaction uh, prior to prior to the pandemic prior to lockdown um, you know to me as a feminist scholar this is obviously very very latent because um, bell hooks actually has a, a fantastic um, um, chapter on teaching and co-presence and embodying in the classroom and what that means and i'm also someone who has written on how the context of academic knowledge production, and this is a very old, in a manner of speaking, feminist critique, is actually constituted around the denial of the bodily and the denial of the physical, the denial of the material to, to a great degree. And obviously that is somewhat less uh, or decreasingly the case. Uh, as there is a growing awareness of precisely these things and as there is a growing um, institutionalization of scholarship that foregrounds the material and the bodily, um, including through sort of feminist and especially sort of black feminist scholarship. But to me, the interesting thing is, is, is that sort of on, offline spaces, so physical co-presence in the academia, as, as you've just hinted, was also never an unproblematic uh, element in and of itself. So how different people and how different bodies exist or existed in that space is, is also an open and sort of fraught, fraught question. And I, I think it would be interesting to introduce into that the, you know, kind of awareness within the digital social sciences about how, 
you know, virtuality is a misleading metaphor because we are physically present when we're engaging through virtual means. We're just physically present in at great distance from each other. And, you know, there's been occasional comment pieces within the academy and outside of it about the kinds of aches and pains and physical deterioration that emerges when you're sitting in a chair using a screen all day, compounded during lockdown conditions, when, uh, you know, perhaps you're only going outside for an hour a day at most, so you're spending 23 hours a day otherwise in a house in the middle of winter not getting much sunshine. And, you know, one of the reasons why I think it's important to not overly philosophize uh, these issues of practice is because there's so much metaphysics here, often implicit, that can get in the way. And it's very difficult to talk about practice in a theoretical, through a theoretical lens that treats these physical questions equally that doesn't privilege or denigrate different aspects of physicality when thinking about these, these issues. And I'm sure if I go back and listen again to what I've just said and what I said previously, I probably find that I myself am doing it um, in terms of how I'm framing this. But I think as a general principle for thinking theoretically about practice, about digital practice to assert the equivalence of physicality in relation to these different media and platforms, I think would be a useful principle. That's an interesting thing. I mean, my sort of metaphysics, as you would put it, or, or philosophy has actually never been about erasing or denying these things. But I think that is in part because my approach has always been, and say Sally Haslanger writes really well about this from my point of view, has always been to, to sort of foreground questions of um, equality, inequality, difference, uh, I guess, comfort, discomfort. But uh, I, I, take your, I take your broader point and I think it's, to some degree, that's inevitable because the language we, we inherit uh, in terms of thinking about scholarship is in itself a scholarly language as Bourdieu would have put it. And in that sense, it is always a question of also basically denial of, of, of the practical, forgetting of the practical. Um, I'm working currently on developing a, a project that actually interrogates what's, what's different about the absence of co-presencing, which is a slightly, in a manner of speaking, contradictory way of, of framing it. But it is precisely about, well, okay, what does it mean that all of a sudden there is an interruption of at least the dominant modes of co-presencing? So not only are people not together in a shared physical space, uh, basically in terms of uh, knowledge production, basically ever, uh, but also the way that people inhabit spaces has has they well has changed. And one element is what you've just referred to, which is everyone's sitting uh, or well I don't know doing other stuff at home uh, for longer than than the usual but also what that means is a very very different thing. Uh, I really like that way of framing it I mean you were slightly apologetic about the kind of absence framing but it made me think of Roy Bascar's dialectical critical realism which is something that I'm not a fan of for any number of reasons but one thing that stuck with me from that 
otherwise very overly, in my view, convoluted way of looking at the social world is the way he talked about absencing as an active process. And I think that's a really useful conceptual innovation to overcome what he termed, you know, in common with other philosophers, ontological monovalence, you know, the privileging of a presence, the privileging of something being seen and hold, holding itself in space. And to think of absencing as something that is, is, is a real process. It's not just the negation or the creation of an absence. It's something that, that's done. And I think that is a very useful way of thinking about the change you've undergone. And, you know, parallels the way I'd approach it, which and is in opposition to the way I'd approach it, though, which is to focus on the infrastructures and the platforms and how those have shifted. Yeah, I think it, it is definitely something that has to do with the difference or perhaps dualism of the metaphysics of presence and metaphysics of absence and whether we theorize only or primarily what there is but or and or also or perhaps primarily what there isn't or what is there no more but on the flip side that does come back to the question of well are we actually ever able to do that without necessarily invoking this from my perspective at least a bit cheap and tired theoretical trope of oh things are no longer what they used to be so regardless of whether what they used to be we frame in in unnecessarily um glorified terms or not so regardless of whether it's a nostalgic trope uh, and I mean, to me, it has been very disturbing to hear people bring up things such as, oh, well, don't you miss office life or don't you miss conferences or don't you miss this and that? And what I fear the most in terms of the consequences of the pandemic and the consequences of the lockdown is that uh, the sheer deprivation that people have experienced over these months uh, is probably going to make them think or view whatever preceded it in unjustifiably sort of or true unjustifiably rosy uh, lenses. And that in that sense, we are going to sort of miss the chance to interrogate uh, academic practices that were in many ways problematic, uh, unequal, etc. only because we would be so, we would have gotten so tired <laughs> by the present alternative that we would rather go back to what used to be, no matter how bad it was, than stick to what's, what's currently the case. Well, you know, I find that very plausible. It reminds me of a, of a point uh, Nicholas Christakis um, made about society in general drawing the parallels the Roaring Twenties that followed the Spanish flu. Um, and, you know, clearly other factors were at work there, you know, a, a world war uh, amongst others. But, you know, history would suggest that there could be a desire to snap back, so to speak. But perhaps it's useful if we break this down into different domains, because it seems increasingly clear to me that this process has accelerated changes in the provision of teaching that have been underway for some time. And it seems very unlikely to me for any number of reasons we can discuss that we will see a return to past normality. It seems fairly clear that hybridity will manifest itself differently in different settings, but we're going to see a more diverse range of provision. 
Um, when it comes to conferences, uh, yeah, that's my concern as well. And, you know, I'm someone who or conference and event organization has been a huge part of my working life. I mean, my life in general. I've been organizing conferences, seminars, and workshops for 15 years, almost, I guess. Um, and if you include kind of political events, fundraisers, gigs, I've been organizing them for almost 20 years. But I really don't think we should go back to at least large conferences. And I've been thinking about this in terms of not talking about a transition from one thing to another, but instead maybe thinking about where we place the burden of proof. So the assumption had been previously that we would have a face-to-face -face conference by default. And perhaps much as I expect will happen with teaching, we could invert that. So the expectation for climactic reasons, for reasons of access, might hopefully be that we do things remotely, but if there's a pressing reason for it to be face-to-face, -face, then that's something that can and should be considered. I think the interesting thing there, and this certainly goes, goes for conferences, but it goes for teaching as well. And I think, um, because I, I do still theorize, well, still primarily uh, other stuff as well, not just scholarship and not just knowledge production. Um, I think we would need to square that with what I think are really strong um, economic and political interests in terms of shifting things back, so to speak, to, to business as usual, to normal. And I'm just thinking about conferences and, as a matter of fact, teaching face-to-face -face as well, uh, listening to colleagues and not only colleagues, uh, so different people who work in the academic profession uh, throughout the lockdown on Twitter, and actually discussing the, the issue of conferences. And as you know, I've been for a long, well, some time now, uh, quite vocal about the necessity to break this, this idea that we need to be physically present for conferences and sort of travel very far and all of that regularly. But it also became obvious to me that there are two other things uh, at stake and they're not gonna go away no matter how strong the commitment. One is the social and affective element of connecting with other people, again, through physical co-presence. In other words, quite a lot of people go to conferences because they want to see their friends or, you know, sort of professional friends, acquaintances, some of them possibly also because they want to meet other people. And I think we need to be quite open about the fact that this is not only or perhaps not even always primarily driven by professional reasons. The other is clearly that conference organization is a major business. And I see, you know, in, in the absence of alternative provision of, I don't know, a universal basic income or something like that, uh, those companies and people who used to work for them are going to be unemployed and as we know governments don't really like that because unemployed people make for dissatisfied voters. I, I think those are two quite different points both important I mean I'm completely in agreement with the first one. When I first started to encounter I mean partly through, through you actually um, arguments about you know for carbon neutral conferences or to turn away from conferences that, you know, my first instinct was about um, kind of reproduction of social networks. 
you know, because whereas a, a platform like Twitter, for example, is quite effective in terms of generating new networks, generating new ties. I think online conferences, when they're structured around a platform like Zoom, tend to just reproduce existing social networks and this kind of an ossification of the hierarchies of the academy that risks ha happening as a consequence of that. And I think in part, that's a matter of design because when our habitual ways of coming together and working together and thinking together are interrupted by a crisis like the pandemic, it's necessary to take a more reflexive and designly attitude towards the events that we put together and find ways to mit mitigate some of these harms and limitations and to find ways to have those sorts of informal meetings and help people find new contacts. But I think it is still going to be rel relatively limited in that, that respect. And I'm not sure what we can do about it. Um, the second point, uh, I think, is a, one that you know, needs to be thought about a lot more because it would be interesting to think about where the infrastructure exists, because some of it is clearly outside of universities. Um, some of it is to do with the marketization of universities, you know, as we're both familiar with. And some of it, I think, is about the role of learned societies, which is something that I've been very interested in for a long time. And my final year as a trustee for the a learned society uh, coincided with the first year after the pandemic and seeing the potential challenges the pandemic posed, particularly as a long-term phenomena to the learned society, left me aware of how precarious their future could be, particularly when we see uh, the hit to conferences alongside Plan S. And so learned societies that rely on membership income, conferences and publications, potentially two of those three are going to be in sharp decline over the next year or two. Yeah, and I think that's another interesting point about how the sort of the social fabric of uh, academic knowledge production um, is going to change. So I think that's, uh, that's, to me at least, a very, very pertinent, pertinent point to think about. So yeah, I mean, I think it's it's quite it's quite curious to reflect on both the point of interests and the point of well, who is there to to kind of mediate those interests, so to speak? Because I think when it comes to sort of professional societies, conferences, they are both a structuring force, so they both, in the manner of speaking. Um, draw boundaries of the discipline, uh, but they are also their outcomes of an existence of such a thing as disciplines or academic disciplines. Uh, and I think it's it's quite interesting to observe the difference between the so-called disciplinary conferences or conferences like the International Sociological Associations or any national sociological associations conference versus um, interdisciplinary and then also subdisciplinary conferences. And I mean, I must say in my experience, and this is certainly saying more about my own scholarship and intellectual trajectory than anything else, I have always found um, 
interdisciplinary conferences that were structured around a topic or a theme. Um, not always a very specific theme though, but uh, often a question. I have found the most interesting and most appealing. Uh, and to me, the most interesting discussions were, were always there. And when it came to professional societies conferences, so say the British Sociological Association's annual conference, I have been to a few, but I mean, I must say, I, fi I find that they tend to reproduce disciplinary and academic structures more than subvert them. Um, well, you know, as you know, and um, I'm guessing at least a few people listening to this will know, I'm, I'm far from critical of the BSA. Um, but I, I do think that we get out of these societies what we put in. And, you know, you used the phrase earlier about the social fabric. And I, I think that's something that we can't take for granted, that it has to be regenerated and we have to make an active effort to regenerate it. And I'm, I'm not saying you've done this here, um, but I've seen people be very blasé about the future of these associations. And that really triples me because, you know, I think part of their limitation comes from the fact that they, they operate at such a scale. So they're reproducing the social fabric at scale and they do so very fallibly and very imperfectly and ways which reproduce the existing structures of the discipline. But if we think about the kind of other centers of academic conviviality, there are departments and universities, there are research networks and research projects, and there are social media. And so in that sense, I, I think the kind of structuring, socializing role played by learned societies is a really important part of the ecosystem. It establishes a kind of generality to that social fabric and an openness, which is both a consequence, a cause of some of the problems and some of the limitations, but also is very valuable at the, at the same time. Um, and the, you know, the work that I did um, at the Foundations of British Sociology Archive at Keele University left me with a real sense of the, the kind of life cycle of these organizations. Uh, so what's now the Sociological Review Foundation had its roots very early on in uh, a series, a network of organizations surrounding the Sociological Society, then La Playhouse, which folded in 1945 and the British Sociological Association arose in part because of the perceived failings of the previous organization. And, you know, looking at that work and looking at that life cycle left me with a sense of the fact that these organizations aren't around forever. And I worry that the structural conditions that have enabled them to be re reproduced over time might be fading and organizations might start to fail. And I think we need to grapple with what that means for scholarly community. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting point. And I mean, I, I, fully, I fully take on board your point that maybe um, I am needlessly relaxed about disciplinary or scholarly societies or learned societies in part because I have had such an interdisciplinary or anti-disciplinary uh, trajectory. So in that sense, and it's not that I have not enjoyed any of, um, any of disciplinary conferences. On the contrary, I think, I still remember the point at which I was at the uh, European Sociological Social Anthropology um, Annual Conference in 2008 when I 
received the call about my first tenured job and that was very nice so I'm not sure I remember a lot about the rest of the conference itself but that was that was a memorable thing certainly so in that sense uh, they're not uh, they're certainly not not all bad uh, but I think it does um, it does boil down or go back to to the question that both you and I have been asking, uh, which is precisely what is the future of scholarship post-pandemic in ways that will reflect both the kind of longer-term processes that have been shaping how um, knowledge production has been changing over the past 10 or 20 years, and specifically uh, those that have been shaped by the experience of the pandemic. Well, I mean, as an attempt to kind of gloss our discussion, I mean, and find points of agreement, is it that we're both interested in how the social fabric of scholarship has been changed by the pandemic and how we ought to respond to that change in the social fabric? Or am I projecting my own position or simplifying yours? Well, no, certainly the first part is my own concern as well. Um, as far as, as, as the second part is concerned, you know, I have a way less interventionist or way less voluntaristic approach to academic knowledge production in the sense in which I think we often don't control what we do. And we certainly do not control the consequences of our actions. Um, as we know, the road to hell is, is paved um, by good intentions. So in that sense, from my point of view, responding to the pandemic is not necessarily going to mitigate the problems we have encountered or problems that have been created both by the pandemic and by the, these longer lasting processes I've mentioned. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. And that also doesn't mean that uh, people are not going to respond one way or another. So I think to kind of bring those two together is, is precisely that we will both be looking at how this disruption, quote unquote, or whatever other fancy hot take term we want to use to describe what has been going on and is still going on, is going to shape scholarship and how people think about uh, academic knowledge production in the future. So perhaps then a starting point for our next episode could be to think about the status of practice in crisis and the contributions practice can make in institutional and collective responses to said crisis. Um, and that could also push back against your idea that I have a voluntaristic take on this, although I do see what you're driving at. That is a very fine point on which to end. And I think we can resume next time by perhaps um, you trying to defend your voluntaristic approach to um, what academics and others can do in this particular case? Well, I'll be storing up arguments in my head until we do that and practicing <laughs> them. Lovely. Speak okay. Bye-bye. Bye.